This is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Thank you. Well, good morning. Christ is risen. This is the bedrock of our faith that he has risen indeed. And what a joy it is. I was thinking as I was hearing you sing that uh, we live in a world that is being ruled by death. And historically, the church has gathered on Sunday to remind each other that it has been conquered. And... What I love about reading the early church fathers, it's only the first or second century. How do you conquer or fight against Satan? You gather and sing. In the midst of a world that's dying, Christ reigns. And what a joy it is to be able to sing in light of what Christ has given us through his resurrection. And I know we have prayed, and there are many things that I'd like to say this morning. But I think that it is good for as a people to stop and break regularly in the midst of a world that walks by its own wisdom. We don't. We walk according to the wisdom of God. And so as we consider it this morning, I'd ask you, I'm going to ask three questions. One, what is of first importance? For those of us in Christ, we should know this. So I'm going to speak very direct to us. For those of you who do not know what is of first importance, I pray that you would have a response to this. Second question I will ask us this morning is, how do you know it's of first importance in your life? And we'll conclude with, where do you stand? And so with that before us, and those three questions set before us, I pray that you would consider them in prayer with me. Father, the cross and the resurrection was never plan B. It was foreknown before the foundations of the world that your grace would be bestowed towards sinners and that your son was predetermined 
to come and die for our sin. You promised the disciples after your victory over death that the gospel, the good news of the Father, the good news of God would go forth out throughout the rest of the world. And we can acknowledge that Tri-Cities just a hundred years ago was a desolate place. And that there was a river and a few farmers. But God, you have raised up a community and you have been faithful to this community. For the gospel has come to Tri-City. And I have witnessed and declared with these people the truth of the gospel with our mouths. But Lord, we know that you are gracious, you are patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And so you wait before you return. And so Lord, I pray not just in this midst of gathering, but in the gatherings of churches across this world, there will be those who have yet to respond to the grace that you've given to them in Christ. But Lord, I pray the preachers that preach from your word, when they hear Christ, they would see the treasure of Christ and drop all things that this world has to offer and pursue him with all their might for the rest of their days. And for those of us who have rested in Christ, who trust in Christ, who stand in Christ, let us hold fast to it. But I ask that we would ask ourselves, are you of first importance in our life? In Jesus' name, amen. I said it already, these are the bedrock. These truths of which have been read to us this morning are the bedrock of Christian faith. And upon them we appreciate our salvation. They are of first importance. And so when we say, He is risen, and you say, we mean this is of first importance. Jesus stated the matter plainly. You can read this yourself if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. The Son of Man, which he said to his disciples, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Mark 9.31 For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Mark 10.33-34 Christ preached his appearing upon earth. Christ died for sins. And promised three days later that he would rise. And as he approached Jerusalem with his disciples exiting out of Jericho, he points to Jerusalem and he says, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and then scourge him and him. And three days later, he will rise again. He stated the matter plainly. Every day, we can acknowledge, is indeed a gift of God. 
But I imagine that there is no better day for the church on Resurrection Sunday to stop and state the matter plainly. Just as Christ did as He did in His life. And so I know, I know many of you have heard the Gospel often. But I ask for you to consider it personally and reflect on it. Is it of first importance in your life as Paul called a church to consider for themselves? When I say the word plain, when I say the gospel is plain, now for a moment I say, when I think of that, I live in a sugar-based society that loves its sweetened teas and its flavored coffees that many might understand. I like my flavored coffees too. But many might then perceive the gospel as being bland. The gospel is not bland. And when I say the gospel is plain, that is not what Christ had us to imagine. In fact, it was much more than that. Because when he talked about the gospel, he said it could be compared to a man in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. And when a man found it, when he heard it, he considered it, he hid it again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, everything that the world has to offer, and buys that field. When you understand the gospel, when it becomes of first importance, everything that this world has to offer you is bland. It is plain. But when you understand the gospel, this is what is the sweetest, most treasure that you will understand that everything becomes to fail in comparison. Kingdom of God can be... Considered like in Matthew 13, 45, 46, verses 45 and 46, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. And searching for pearls, and man, does our world not search? And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. When I say that the gospel is plain, I do not mean, nor did Christ mean, bland. Rather, When God sent His Son to proclaim the Gospel, He said it plainly, meaning it will hit you in the face directly. The Gospel, when you consider it, is the incredible riches of God revealed to humanity. But when the Gospel is preached, when it's considered, it is frank. And it is direct. And so as I go through this passage... It will hit you directly. And that when we ask in our first question, what is of first importance? It is the Gospel. Paul doesn't take much time when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Consider with me when I read the whole verse. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. I don't know what could be more frank or plain or direct than that statement. Humanity came into this world purposely rebelling against the standard of God. Your little child that you think is perfect is not. In fact, I marvel that he's even considering 
my own children, and I've watched many children, there will be a time when a toddler will say to his parent, I myself am guilty of this as well. Or even saying it out loud to their parents or mother or father, I do not need you. The reality is, is that humanity has come into this world through the Creator. And humanity's response to His Creator is, I do not need you. I do not want you. And purposely lived our lives in rebellious rebellion against Him. Gospel is frank. And it's direct. It stands in contrary to the world's wisdom, which says everyone is right before God. Do your best, and you'll, he'll accept it. The gospel is frank. No, that won't work. Here's the reality which is revealed to script, for, through the Scriptures. God has a standard. As Romans 2, 8, 9 has declared, those who are selfish... And ambition and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. This is their consequence. This is our consequence. Wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Just for the, for the Jew first and also the Greek. So we understand when Jesus came... I'm going to Jerusalem. He said the matter plainly. He said the matter frankly. And that the consequence of sin is resulting in the storing up of God's wrath. Children. When you... I'm thinking of myself, not my children. My children fairly well. I got spanked a lot. Um, That doesn't surprise many of you. Um, But here's the reality. When I rebelled against my parents... instruction, I experienced immediate consequence. Maybe a five minute period of waiting in my room. But as my parents came up and said, you you knew the rule? Yes. And you didn't do it? Yes. Why? Because I didn't want to. And I experienced the immediate consequence of my rebellion towards my parents. Hear me. The gospel is this. God has not dealt to you what you deserve. As we, we have already realized as we have gone through the letter of Romans. It's in Romans chapter 2. In its very beginnings, Paul teaches those who are unrepentant or stubborn are storing up for themselves wrath for the day in which they appear before God. We are familiar with immediate judgment. God being gracious waits. And this is the element of the gospel which is so freeing for us because there is salvation of or from that wrath that has been storing up collectively throughout your life. This is of first importance. Why? Because Christ Died for our sins. Therefore, the, the consequence that you are going to endure has been endured on Christ, as Romans 5.8 declares. But God demonstrated His love towards us, towards you, in that while you were sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There were days that I questioned if I could endure the discipline of my parents. Right? That's just a fear of children towards their parents. Right? And my parents are a wonderful, and I'm thankful they disciplined me. But there is a wrath of God that no one could endure. That is so terrifying, that is so real, that there is only one who can actually endure it for you. Which is Christ. Christ died for your sin. Matter must be stated plainly, directly, frankly. Those whom you work with, those of you who you know, this is what we ought to say to the world in front of us. But that is only one part of the gospel, isn't it? For Christ died for our sins, Paul goes on to tell a church. And it's interesting that Paul has to tell a church this. For they had kind of gone off course making church about other things. And he reminds them, this is of what you are of first importance. 4 verse 4, he was buried. The consequence of sin is death. Humanity, we recognize, was created from the dust, but as a result of our rebellion, humanity's destiny is back to the dust. The world recognizes this. We only bury the dead. This last year, as I know, as many of you also know, or even in the last two years, there is a powerful moment when you see a loved one that you once could embrace be placed in the ground. I can't describe it, but it is a humbling reality that not only we recognize for our loved ones, but also recognize for ourselves. When Christ died, He died. And the world knows you bury those who are dead. And Christ, our Savior, was buried. What fascinates me about the Gospel is how frankly Christ proclaimed what was going to happen for Him and how absurd the reality it must have been for the disciples. Christ said it frankly, I will go to Jerusalem, I will die, I will be killed, I'll be buried, but I will rest in that grave for three days. This is of first importance. He was buried, look at verse 4 as we consider the whole verse. And he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ in his humility allowed himself to be buried for merely three days. And he let his disciples know three days and that's it. For as we remember, consider with me Luke chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. As the women went up to go prepare Christ's body while in the tomb, and they came before some angels who were dazzling them, or were in dazzling clothing, as Luke records. And in the announcement of the gospel, verse 6, they say, He is not 
here, but he has risen. And notice what they say. Remember? Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? He told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And he put a limit on the period of time that he would rest in the grave. Three days. And they remembered his word. The reality is this. Scripture not only testifies of this reality, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 26, 19, that proclaimed, Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake, shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Well, how in the world will that take place? This is the gospel. This is what Paul proclaimed of first importance. Christ died for your sins. He was buried and limited himself in the grave for three days. And demonstrated that while the power of death had been on display from Adam till Christ. And Christ testified of his power by resurrecting from the grave. Putting its reign to death. And Christ offering now to the world by means of faith. That those who trust in his payment of sin for the payment that which they would endure before God. That he took it for them that the resurrection he endured would be the fulfillment of prophecy of old, that those who hope in him would experience that same resurrection. Scripture throughout all testifies of the incredible act of the gospel. But Paul and Peter and James all were so impacted by this reality that they remained unwavered from its truth. In which Peter, when he preached his first message, he goes before the, the people who killed him, the Jews, and he says, this man, delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end Putting an end. Putting an end. This is the gospel. That God Himself put an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Christians, this is of first importance for you and I to realize. It is such a treasure. That the, worlds, the things of this world are bland. And that while the world tries to gather its resources to treasure, we have found a treasure which inherits or gives us life for eternity. And Paul, writing to the church, reminds them, don't be confused. Don't waver from this principle. This is of first importance. This is why you sing together. This is why you unify around one another. It's around this reality. And just to validate that Christ's resurrection was not a mirage or a metaphorical idea, 
He labors for the next several verses to show Christ rose from the dead, literally, physically. I remember sitting, oh, it must have been four years ago at a coffee shop. And a man saw me reading my Bible and started asking me questions. And eventually I did the thing I shouldn't have said and said I was a pastor. And so then he wanted to debate. And we debated for the next hour whether Christ's resurrection was physical or was his resurrection of a mental idea, his philosophies taking root in his disciples, and that through his ideas, man was resurrected. Paul doesn't go there. Peter doesn't go there. The world will go there. James doesn't go there. And Paul, guiding the church from that very idea that is still sinfully inherited in this world, to deny the reality of Christ's resurrection, testifies of this in verses 6. He appeared, verse 5, excuse me, he appeared to Caiaphas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. You can go find them. Paul writes this to a church. There are some people that still live. And they have seen the risen Lord physically. But some have fallen asleep. Love, Paul. Those in the world without Christ die. Those in Christ fall asleep. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James and all to the apostles. They can testify of this truth, which is of first importance. And he could have stopped right there. And then he humbles himself. And if you're familiar with who Paul is, he hated Christ. He hated those who followed Christ. He actually told, you can actually read in the book of Acts, he pursued those who loved Christ and tried to kill them. But then God showed up in Paul's life and saved him. And he proclaims in verses 8, 9, and 10, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. While I was tackling or rejecting and defying those who followed Christ and trying to destroy them, God showed up. He appeared to me also. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. If you want somebody who was once a critic of Christianity, it's Paul, who now stands in the position of proclaiming it in its category of first importance. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. Jesus proclaimed the gospel plainly, frankly, directly. And so I would like you just to hear it again. You are, we are rebels, sinners, we do not like being told what we but what to do. That's testified in our response to our parents, towards government, towards police officers. 
We do not like being told what to do. But among all those earthly institutions, we do not like being told by God what to do. And as a result of that, we have been storing up wrath. But God being gracious towards us, withheld His wrath towards you, sending His one and only Son. And as a result of sending His one and only Son, who was perfect and without sin, Christ died for your sin. And as a result of dying for His sins, He was buried. Humbled God Himself into the grave. And He was raised up on the third day for your hope, if you believe. This must be stated plainly. This must be understood clearly. And upon any other day of the year, this must be considered each and every single one of us where we're at. Point two. How do you know? Churches ought to make this their first importance. Paul writes these words to a church. And in a church, you have individuals that gather collectively to make up a people. But how do you know when it's first importance in your life? Pete or Paul in Romans, as we've been going through the letter of Romans, he said this, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also to the Greek. And no doubt, when you read the letter of Romans, you realize how committed Paul is to the gospel. I mentioned this before, and I've and many of you know, I did not like high school. I didn't like my teen years. And one of the reasons why I didn't like it is I didn't like the way I acted. For some, it might have been just subtle if they were watching me. But I knew deep within, I acted a different way with my soccer team than I did with my youth group. And I knew that there was this, this double-mindedness that I had within me. And that... I was acting one way in church, praise God, and acting an entirely different way with another group of people. And I would, if I were to be honest, I'm not the only one, if you were to be honest, that struggles with this. That sometimes we can change according to the groups that we're in. What fascinates me about, and was so encouraging about the apostles and those who pursued Christ in the New Testament you see an unwavering commitment to who Christ is. That it is genuinely of first importance. It could be Peter who preached the gospel to the Jews at Pentecost who killed Christ. He's not afraid of them. And proclaims and he hits them with the gospel with direct, frank words. You killed him. He rose from the dead. He's not dual-minded. It's Paul. It doesn't matter if he's addressing a governor, Festus, Agrippa, Herod, or Nero, the emperor of the Roman Empire. His commitment to Christ never wavered. Peter, whether he was sitting with Jews or in a Gentile house at Cornelius' family, he never wavers 
from the gospel. How do you know if it's of first importance in your life? Because it doesn't matter where you go. That it remains the bedrock of your faith. That it becomes the lens by which you see the world in front of you. That you know that this becomes of first importance. Paul himself, I'll just mention, I couldn't, we don't have enough time to labor through this. But in 1 Corinthians, he makes this evidently clear to a church that is wavering back and forth on what they're supposed to be about. That he reminds them of people just like us today. 1 Corinthians 2.2 For I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What He preached in the church is what He preached in the world. And 1 Corinthians 9.16 For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. He's controlled. Now that will change the way you parent. If the gospel is of first importance to you, that will change the way that you love your spouse. If the gospel is of first importance to you, I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 26-27. Look at the way he runs. Reliance. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I'm, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body, making it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself not be disqualified. Paul is concerned that somebody might understand him about being about something else. And how do we know gospel is of first importance. We saw it in Christ. It was of first importance to him. And you'll find not just this in Paul's conviction, you'll find it in all the apostles. And what do they plead with the church to do? Walk in the same way. So reliance, I have said I wanted to be frank because the gospel is frank and direct. Can you share the gospel? Can you share the gospel? If it is of first importance, this is where we start. Christ died for you. He was buried. He rose on the third day. And He's coming back for those who have hoped in Him. Can you share it? Can you edify your spouse, your children, your friends with the gospel? You understand that God might at one point call you to choose Him over your job, how will you know when it's of first importance? When you choose Him and you remain the same whether you're in the church or within the world, whether that be in the workplace, a school, or a family that does not yet know who Christ is. That I ask you to consider with me one more question. Point three, where do you stand? I skipped over verses 1 and 2. But I turn our attention here just for a moment as we close our Resurrection Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also 
received. The gospel is a truth which must be received. If you have not received the gospel of God as Christ's payment for your sin, wrath still is destined for you. You must receive him. But there is a type of receiving that Paul warns us about. Look at verse 2. Well, let me read verses 1 and 2 in full. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand. But here is the warning by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There is a type of response to the gospel that is of no saving power. It was Jesus himself in his, one of his parables that he warned that as the gospel is being sowed, consider with me Matthew 13, 20-21. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word. There is a type of man who hears the gospel and receives it with joy, and yet has no firm root in himself, but only receives it temporarily. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, Immediately he falls away. Paul himself did not want to disqualify himself with empty faith. Just because you've said a prayer at one point during an Easter service or a Christmas Eve service or a Sunday morning and then walk away from that opportunity of receiving the gospel to live like you always wanted to in rebellion to God does not save you. Hear Paul's words, which you also received, in which you also stand. The gospel is saving when you hold to it. It is of first importance. It shapes the very way that you perceive the world in front of you. It's the treasure in the field, which you deny the things of this world to enjoy it forever. To hold fast to it. Unless otherwise you believe in vain. But Paul. Writes these words. For a church. And what all I've tried to do this morning. Is to keep it plain. Direct and frank. And Paul encourages the church to do what? Hold to it. You have received it. Hold on to it. Stand it. Stand in it. Hold fast to the word which I preached and then encourages them, if you don't, unless you believed in vain. Here is something that I would like to conclude our time with together. Because often, when we hear the gospel, it is helpful to remember what's set ahead for us. And to this church, he concludes in this chapter what's set ahead for those who trust in Christ. It's the sweetened tea the flavored coffee of, of the gospel. It's, now, those are weak examples. Because when my grandpa was nearing his deathbed, when your loved one who's are in Christ are nearing death, they cling to these words. Place me in the ground. Just wait. It will be temporary. And Paul, encouraging the church in the latter part of, the, of, of this chapter, he writes these things and hear them. 
For these truths are for you, those who stand in the gospel. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. He could have said, we will not all die. But those who are in Christ don't die. They just sleep. They wait. They wait till his return. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. There are cemeteries all around this city. They are weeping places now. What will they become? Places of worship. For those who have hoped in Christ in the moment will be changed. Verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this immortal must put on the immortal. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality. That is the treasure in Christ. That those who hope will inherit eternity. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, we who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. But we don't we don't skip verse fifty eight, do we? Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast. Don't waver from this. First of importance, immovable. This is where you stand. Build your life upon the, the, the rock, always abounding in the work of the Lord, proclaiming and teaching, edifying one another, loving one another and our neighbors through the gospel, abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain, the Lord. Christ died for your sin. He was buried and He rose again. And for those who have received it, those who stand in it and hold fast to it, this is your reward. Let's pray. Lord, I pray. Lord, as we have said it clearly and plainly and frankly and directly, Christ came, Christ died, Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ reigned. And so, Lord, while we live in the midst of this world, we hope in your return. For in that moment, when you come in the clouds of glory, those who have hoped in you will worship like we've never done before. But until then, Lord, I pray that our lives, whether it be on Sunday mornings, on the day of the resurrection, Lord, we would make this of first importance every day and that we will stand and hold fast to it and that we would be confident to proclaim it to those in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.